Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Me and Inez are back after a two-week hiatus. We were both uh, traveling. And um, yeah, there's been, uh, you know, some news on my end um, since, you know, since we last talked. Um, and I want to say, I mean, Inez, the first thing I want to say is like you, you know, I didn't know if anyone would like stick up for me. You know, I thought some people would, but like you, you never know. And I think you were like one of the first. I, I, I think you weren't like you know, I couldn't imagine you like asking your boss if this was okay or anything like that. Um, it was just like, yeah, this was in the past. It was bad. I, you know, I, I don't defend the comments of the, you know, I wrote in my previous life and I don't, you know, I don't defend them myself. I don't ask anyone else to. Um, but you said, yeah, I mean, we should, you know, judge me based on, um, you know, what I say today and which we, we talk about in my last few years of writing and just, just thanks. I mean, you behaved extremely honorably. Um, well, I, I, I appreciate the thanks, but I don't know that it's necessary. I mean, I, I think this is just, um, this is how we ought to behave. Um, I think that there are serious, actually, I mean, we can, we can get into this in a minute, but I think it's very encouraging that the right seemingly has finally figured out the way that this game is played. Um, and as many people online have pointed out, right, how many, how many uh, pundits, sort of mainstream pundits on the left uh, have, were Stalinists or Maoists, right, in their college years? I know I knew many uh, uh, college friends, you know, who, who went in that direction uh, when they were young. And none of them have to do apologia. None of them are in danger of being, quote unquote, canceled, right? And I, I really do think the last few attempts to cancel people on the right, whether it's you or Pedro um, or Nate Hawkman, the fact that a lot of those seem to have failed is, I think, an important turning point. A lot of people say the end of cancel culture, and um, I think there's still very serious elements of that for people who don't have a platform. I think that the the incentives, and I know you've written extensively about this with regard to the Civil Rights Act, but also um, just to, with regard to corporate culture, right? So I, it's not that I think the problem is over, but I, I am encouraged by the fact that the rights finally seems to have figured out that it, you, you really shouldn't on the direction of places like HuffPo um, short circuit the debate or have a conversation or for that matter, you know, deem certain people irrevocable or behind beyond the pale just because they at one point embraced some pretty radical ideas. Again, the left doesn't do that at all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a spirit of just like, you know, really caring about ideas, like not saying this person should be, ex like, I, I don't write about one or two topics, right? It's not like I just write about race or I just write about political correctness. I write about, you know, a dozen different things. And like, even if I had like terrible views today in like one area, like people should still be able to engage my ideas in others. And especially since that this was, you know, uh, you know, 12, 15 years ago. Uh, I think that, yeah, people, you know, knock on wood, I, you know, we don't know. Anyone could have pressure, you know, people could start downsizing any moment, like who, who knows. Um, but so far, you know, I think the people who, um, you know, who knew me, who've like, who've appreciated my work before, um, they haven't given them what they wanted. And I'm just like, I'm very uh, appreciative of that. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's a, the left has this terrible thing. I mean, have you been paying attention to Iglesias um, and how like he's like getting all trouble because he would sometimes interact with me. Like we just reply to each other. I'm like, just not big friends, just like talking about issues. Yeah. I, I've seen that. And actually, I mean, who knows what the actual impetus of this bring this up, you know, 12, 15 years later actually was, but um, I, that's my suspicion that actually um, 
leaving Pedro aside for one moment, because I don't think he really falls into this category, but for you and Nate, I think both of you were, you were people on the right getting published in, in the New York Times, right? Or you had some people who read your work who are in the center or on the left. And actually, I think that's the target of it, right? Nate Hawkman had, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if The Atlantic actually ever ended up running something from him, but he was writing a long essay for The Atlantic when he was first canceled. Um, he had published that great essay that I really actually recommend everybody read on, on the post-religious right in the New York Times. And he was getting, uh, he was breaking into the mainstream um, in, and not by doing it the David French way, right? Not by just constantly firing right and being the apologetic for, you know, who hates conservatives more than, um, you know, the, the left. And I, I don't think that part of it is an accident. And it wouldn't be surprising to me if the ultimate aim of writing that HuffPo piece was actually people like Iglesias and not you, right? Um, Interesting. Is actually to make sure, because you can survive this, but I don't know. What do you think? You think that the New York Times is ever going to publish you again after this? I think it's doubtful. I mean, I think it was probably unlikely even before. Um, just, I mean, you know, I've had some Twitter mobs come after me. And so I thought it was unlikely before that I'd be in the New York Times again. Um, so yeah, probably, um, probably not. Whether that made me a target or not, you know, I think that just my prominence, you know, my growing prominence made me a target. I think they would have run it if they had this information on any conservative, you know, they probably would have run it. And I'm sure that like, yeah, I don't know if they're that sophisticated because like this guy who wrote this piece, yeah, you're right. He does talk about the New York Times. He does talk about the Washington Post. But it, like, I, I think it would have been the same if I all I'd ever written for was conservative uh, publications. I think these people are just you know sort of fanatics on these races. Like, if somebody came to him with the scoop about Inez or you know, I don't know if anyone else um, who was similarly of prominence, I think they would have run with it. I, I don't think it was necessarily targeted based on I was reaching liberals or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, I'm basically the same in private as I am in public. So um, I, I want to ask you something else about this this whole experience, um, because a lot of times um, when people, you know, sort of move away from a past radicalism, right, they go and they flip onto the other side. So, I mean, here I'm thinking of even some good examples, like during the communist days, right, you have communist defectors who then became um, either libertarians or conservatives, either defected to the West, right? Um, and and there's a long tradition on the right of people coming, I'm thinking of David Horowitz, right? Coming, red diaper babies converting and, and coming over to the right. The entire neocon movement, right? Was essentially former leftists leaving the left. I'm sure there are similar stories. I'm sure there are people who are brought up in an evangelical conservative culture who, you know, get angry with that culture or have a bad experience with it and flip to the left and then become fanatical in that way. Um, and one of the reasons that we'll get to the apology part in a minute, but I want to ask, because even in your apology, right, you don't denounce, you don't completely denounce some of the views that you hold. You're just, you're more moderated about them now. You're more circumspect and more mature about them. Um, and you're not as radical, but it's, it's not like you flipped from right to left. Like you didn't become a DEI, uh, you know, uh, a, you, you didn't become a DEI professor, <laughs> um, and I wonder if that's a better route out of radicalism. I guess I wonder which which route because I've I've seen I've seen both, right? I've seen people who were once radical become just completely in the opposite direction. And but I it seems like it would be a more widespread thing to just merely say, well, you know, the forces I was reacting against, those were legitimate, and some of my ideas were legitimate, 
Um, but I went too far down in this rabbit hole and I, I forgot the countervailing and, you know, influences. I forgot, you know, how actual human beings interact with each other. And I fell down into this intellectual hole. It seems to me more common probably. Yeah. Yeah. And that makes it a little bit harder for me because like, if you just go like, you know, complete polar opposite, they can say, oh, you really renounce your views to these leftists. You see my old writing and my new writing and like you and like what just appears in like the Federalist or like Fox News, there's no difference. Because if you're not a leftist on these issues, if you don't like completely deny, you know, that there's racial differences in crime rates or whatever, and you're not trying to, you know, use government to achieve uh, uh, equal outcomes between groups, then you're just, you're just racist. You're against the whole project of, you know, multiracial democracy and, and civil rights and all these good things we've had uh, since the 1960s. Um, and so like, this is, yeah, I, I think that these, these leftists, I think they're going to need to like, you know, first of all, they should be in touch with the reality. Like they should just like accept that there are like statistical, you know, differences in behavior between groups. The groups score different test scores and it's not because the tests are racist. Um, and like that, and th I think this leads to radicalism when people see that like they're denying facts that they could see with their own eyes. Um, they go in a bad direction like I did and just become sort of like, you know, inhumane and, you know, I would say illiberal and sort of, you know, um, just, you know, just against sort of treating people like individuals. I mean, that's a terrible thing to happen. Um, but yeah, you want to prevent people from going down that path and just saying like, you know, you're a Nazi or you're a, you're a, you know, you're woke, you're some kind of a, you know, DEI uh, robot. Uh, that's not going to work for for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people are just going to go in terrible directions for that. And th that's what we have to get past. I mean, that's this is why I think this is like, this is the split on the left. Like the ones who just want to, like there's this guy named Dan Moynihan. You know, he writes uh, like a sub stack. He's on Twitter and he writes like some okay stuff. Like, you know, about like, oh, government bureaucracy and paperwork and like how we should get rid of that. I'm like, okay, I read him. He seems like a reasonable guy. But he's like, oh, I always knew this about Richard Hananya. And all, all his evidence was because I had an interaction with him once where I said, like, you know, women are less pro-free speech than men. Literally just that, right? And it's just like he sees no difference between that and, like, the worst kind of racism and the worst kind of misogyny uh, in the world. And so, like, how do we even, like, talk to these people? I don't know. It, it's, really, it, it's really sad, like, how sort of their minds are corrupted on these issues. And it just makes sort of you know, understanding across, you know, ideological lines. It just makes it so difficult. Yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the pithy ways I've, I've uh, formulated this in my own head when I'm thinking about the lack of any kind of nuance and uh, in discussion of, for example, racial issues or differences between the sexes um, is that I think a large part of the left now no longer sees any material difference between the views of the average boy who landed on Omaha beach, right. Um, and Adolf Hitler. And if, if your worldview compresses the two sides of world war II, um, you know, into a single ideal ideology, then you are simply not looking at the world. I, I wanted to write this piece, uh, way back when I was, um, like just starting to write for the Federalist. This is probably 2017. And my husband convinced me not to write it. He's like, this is, there's no way that this is going to, um, you know, this is going to get you canceled if you write it just by the headline, even though what I was going to write was of course quite nuanced. Uh, but I think it's actually an important idea. Maybe some point I will write it, but is there's this idea that racism is the worst thing that a human being can do to another human being. Um, and that doesn't mean that racism, quote unquote, isn't bad, right? Um, but the the reason that we find it 
you know, the, the reason that we do have, uh, you know, I think legitimately have some worries about that kind of tribalism is because it's, it has led to much worse things that human beings can do to each other, but it's far from the only thing that's led people to kill each other. Right. Like it's, it's, um, and there's no separation between, uh, you know, the, the natural tribalism of human beings of which I would say America is remarkably on the low end of the scale. I mean, if you go basically anywhere else, including of course, European countries, um, you'll find it, much more of that kind of ethnic tribalism than you will in the United States because we are a multi-ethnic country, uh, because people actually are. And I think because we have this legacy of, of sort of, um, what is it like more, almost like a, a trade society, right. Where, um, we almost like Venice maybe back in the day, right. Where we have, uh, people from all over the world exchanging goods and services. And I, there are problems with that. I think there, there are hard, some of them are laid out in Othello, right. But, um, that there are problems to that kind of society, but there are also advantages. And one of them is that America actually is, Americans are remarkably sort of charitable towards people with different customs uh, from themselves or different religions, different ethnic backgrounds. But you go around the world and that's not the case. Uh, and to equate that kind of um, ethnic tribalism, which again, has its own problems immediately with genocide and Hitler is again a compression of. That's why I use the example of, of the the kid landing on Omaha Beach, who probably a lot of them were probably fine with even legal segregation, right? But the idea of equating that with Nazism is itself such a anti-intellectual and anti-reality project um, that I don't know. I I think the the whole thing is. Um, Obviously, we're not going to have a good faith discussion about any of these things. And I do think that not having that good faith discussion about some obvious facts like racial differences in crime, um, if, if the only and think the same thing on sex differences, right? If, if the only person saying certain obviously true things um, in the popular square is Andrew Tate, is that his name? Andrew Tate? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. Okay, I know I know the last part, Tate, um, but is, is Andrew Tate, right? Then that's going to attract a lot of people to his position because they'll recognize the truth in what he's saying, but then he'll add on a bunch of other things that are probably extreme and, and unnecessary onto that. But to my mind, the best way to bring people back from that is to start aggressively saying the obviously true things. Um, and for the mainstream, right, to start to say the aggressively, obviously true things. Yeah. There was this incredible essay. I mean, just, <clears throat> I agree with all that. And it was, but it was like the a polar opposite of what you're saying. It's just by this guy, I think his name is John Gans, G-A-N-Z. Have you ever seen this guy? Um, I think so. I he's think a, I've interacted like this, with him on Twitter. Yeah, he's like this academic leftist who's just very, you know, very left-wing, standard left-wing. And he had a substack that said, like, I was actually worse now than my past because before I was just, like, racist. But now, like, because I accept, like, statistical differences, the race is the racism is more brutal. It's like an ideology now instead of just, like, something more innocent, which is just, like, disliking other people. And I'm just like, this guy, is, you know, I used to read him, and I think he's, like, so sort of smart. And it's just like... Dude, like you, you have this just sort of religious objection to like you know uh, facing certain facts, and you know like how can we how can we reach these people? Like you know these people who seem intelligent, who you know I think they're they want to do the right thing. I think they're well intentioned. Maybe you don't think that, uh, but I think you know in their own minds they, they they think they're you know making a better world, and people like us are just bigoted and irrational and just 
believe these things because I don't know, we're bad and we want to believe them. Um, yeah, how do we reach those people? Well, I think it depends on the person, whether it's, it's possible, but I do think that it, it takes an enormous amount of mental energy to deny truths in front of your face. Um, and I, I do, I do think, I mean, this is a bit pop psych of me, but I, I do think it's just, there's an enormous amount of mental energy, just like with a trans issue that goes into denying things that people immediately can see are false. Um, and so I think people become fanatical about silencing any, anybody who obviously observes something that is directly around them. Um, but I, I, I do think that's, that is a breeding ground for certain kind of radicalism. And honestly, I, there, and there's another part of this, which is just, again, when did we lose sight of the fact that 20, you know, 21 year olds are, are inclined towards radicalism? I mean, this is something that has been understood for a, a long time and we used to make jokes about it, right? I mean, the, the whole stereotype of the, the philosophy undergrad, right? Sitting around like smoking a joint, you're talking about like, radical ideas on the left, on the right. I, I, like I said, I certainly had a bunch of communist friends um, in high school and college. I mean, and some of them never grew out of it and a lot of them did. Right. Um, because they had more experiences in the world and they developed a certain amount of nuance. And most of them, by the way, again, did not flip into being conservatives. They just, you know, didn't, they, they, they came away from some of the most radical or um, violent and outright violent, um, you know, ideas that they had. Uh, and they came away from those ideas. When did we stop recognizing that that's. I mean, I, I think that's, that's kind of natural, especially in a society that has so aggressively suppressed, I think particularly young men um, from any sort of chance of glory or um, purpose, or I, I just, it, it seems very predictable to me um, that, that people would find these kinds of ideologies attractive. I, you won't, one only hopes that they become more nuanced over time, that they, meet more people that for example on the misogyny track right like they they find a, a woman to share I learned their life that with you are and, you women can behave honorably in politics as, as you showed me <laughs> i i don't i i just I, I not even in politics i'm not just talking about like in in person or our personal interactions right I, some of us i wonder how much of it is atomization as well that um, I, I think the left likes to frame it as, you know, incels in their basement. I don't think that's quite true. I mean, I, I think all of us, and particularly the younger you are, we have fewer in-person friendships, fewer in-person interactions, fewer family relationships that are permanent and loving, right? Um, so, for example, you know, I, I, I have wondered a lot recently how many young women don't have any, I think we talked about this last time, but uh, don't have any interactions with men that are deep and long lasting and loving, right? Whether that's sexual or not, it could be your father or your brother, but fewer women have a father around fewer. There are fewer siblings period. So fewer women have brothers, right? Fewer women have sons because of the declining birth rate. Fewer women have husbands because of the declining marriage rate. And I can see how that funnels people into one of two directions, right? On the one hand, you can decide the people that you're not interacting with 
um, are exactly the same as you in a kind of psychological projection, right? And then therefore get angry when they're not, um, when, when men don't behave as women or don't, you know, behave especially emotionally as women. Now that's, you know, pegged as, as like, uh, almost abusive, like the men don't go to therapy mean, right? Um, if they don't behave like women, they, they are evil. And then on the other hand, you can see just, um, just diving deep into like, these are alien creatures, you know, that, that we have nothing in common as yeah. men and women in our humanity at all. And we're just wholly alien beings with, with no way to actually connect with each other's experiences or, or uh, feelings or visions or, of or like this crude Marxism where we're like, you know, just uh, we have antagonistic interests. Right. And like, you know, men have to conquer or women have to conquer. Right. That's also, that also is like something people latch on to. Do you, uh, yeah. Simone so, de Beauvoir famously said that women are the most oppressed class in, in all of history, because unlike any other oppressed class. So if she uses the examples of Jews and blacks, said at least theoretically you can imagine either completely separating from your oppressors and moving away, or you can imagine killing them all and, and with an end to your impression, but women are the only ones who are tied to their oppressors. She thought this made women particularly oppressed. I, I, I would argue, of course, that it's one of the many reasons why this oppressor oppressed lens makes absolutely right. no sense to discuss yeah. women and men, whether today or frankly, 300 years ago as well. Um, it just doesn't, it's, it's not the correct frame of reference to talk about interdependent, you know, sexes. Yeah, right. And, you know, and this is why I think that the racialism is also bad too, because like, look, we all benefit, for example, from if, you know, you can't separate different races, you know, in the way you can't with the sexes. But like, if, you know, the best person gets a job and they invent a cure for cancer, right? Or they invent some kind of, you know, product that we all use, that's better for all of us. You want to be the most... You know, discriminated against group in a rich society more than you want to be the uh, the the you know the most privileged group in a poor society, right? I mean, the fact that we live in America, we live in a first world country, we should be extremely grateful uh, for that, and we should be you know thinking about ways to you know make everybody better off. It's not it's not like there's like affirmative action and stuff, like okay, but like most of life is not zero sum. It's not like a black guy doing well or a white person doing well harms you know people of the other race. Uh, so yeah, I just you know we just really need to get beyond that um so you wanted to so like yeah let's we'll move on to like other stuff besides the, the recent news you said you wanted to ask something about the uh, uh apologies um and like you know how uh, like you know, whether these they work or anything so go ahead yeah well i mean you've written an essay about this about not apologizing um uh, and then you did uh, and i i think i had very much the same opinion as as you i thought that apologies into a hostile um into a hostile mob, essentially, are uh, not appreciated. They just put blood in the water, um, and, and they they don't help. Um, but and and your apology is is half apology and and half not in the sense that it's a genuine repudiation of your former views. But you also double down on some of your other crime think views, even within the apology, right? So I'm wondering. Um, you know, have we turned a corner on being able to talk about this in a more nuanced way? And because of that or related to that and perhaps unrelated, you know, what is the status of apologizing? What is the status of, of being canceled and apologizing now? Because it seems to me that your apology actually really helped you. Um, whereas in previous cases of cancellation, it has always put blood in the water. 
you know, and I would actually put Pedro a little bit more in, in your camp as well, because he, he denounced his former views and stuff. you know, I, I, I no longer believe these things. Um, but it wasn't a full, you know, bending of the knee either. Obviously he's, he's still a very right wing guy. Yeah. Yeah. So when I was thinking, when I wrote that paper and the examples I used, you know, they were examples where people either were saying something that was arguably true or like their real opinion. Right. Um, so, you know, there's like, you know, this was back in 2015, I think this was published. Uh, the, you know, the idea, like most of the stuff that, you know, people were getting in trouble for was not, you know, objectively that bad, or at least from my perspective, wasn't objectively that bad. Um, I think like in my case, like, you know, it's not about like making the HuffPost happy. Um, you know, I know they wish the worst for me. I know I'm not going to make them happy. It's, um, it's like, I have to be honest with people. Like, I can't say that like, you know, even if it helped me, like if you told me it would help me to sit there and say, oh, you know, I, I did nothing wrong. It probably would have with like many right wingers, many, many right wingers on Twitter were, were upset with me. Um, but it's like, I can't be honest with my audience. I, I cringe. I read that stuff and I'm like, you know, I'm embarrassed. I'm like, wow, I, I really, I really sucked. And I can't just like, it would be just completely dishonest to go through life uh, telling my readers, no, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I don't think that. So like, I have to just tell the truth. And so like, you know, you have to tell the truth if, if that's what you believe. Um, whether it helped me. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think, I think so. I think it gave people permission. Like if I, you know, if I didn't say anything, you know, I think it could have given people the impression that those are still my views and, and you know and that's very hard to defend right um if i make clear that those are not my views then you know there's an opportunity for people to say look he, he made a mistake and he was stupid um but you know that's this is not something to like unperson you know somebody for especially since it was a long time ago and now he believes different things um and so yeah you know I, I think that it like it really depends on the situation and it depends on what your goals are i think just like giving into a mob is you know a bad move uh at the same time like you know, like honesty is sort of my brand and I, I just couldn't lie to people. I wouldn't be me if I like pretended like that was okay because I don't, I don't like those views. I cringe at the writing. I cringe at the ideas and I cringe at the communication style and the trolling and the joking. I, I just hate it. And so I just, that overcame everything else. Like people just really need to know that. Uh, I mean, what happened to argument? So the other aspect of this that really bothers me and the reason that I've, I guess I've defended a series of people who have been canceled at this point. Um, I, I really don't like this idea that I, you kind of said it in, when we first started talking at the beginning of this podcast, which is that just because you're willing to have a conversation with somebody, you're now, uh, you're, you're endorsed all of their ideas or because you agree with somebody on some aspect um, that you therefore agree. I mean, obviously you and I, the previous shows will attest, like you and I disagree on a lot. Um, in terms of political worldview, right? Um, and not just the stuff you were canceled for, just across the board, right? Um, and I just, I really don't like this politics of sort of association and purity that if, even if you think someone said some really heinous things on one topic, that means they couldn't, they couldn't have um, a good point somewhere else. I mean, I, I, cause I, I've been asked sometimes, so I, you know, uh, if, if what happens to you, what, how would you respond if, uh, like, if they come after me, for example, for like, for having a podcast with you or um, for retweeting somebody or whatever, who has had somewhere else has said something awful. And um, I just think that's an impossible standard. And it's very damaging, not just to, I hate this word, but the discourse, <laughs> but um, to, to argument to any ability to actually um, suss out ideas. And, and by the way, it's not a standard that's applied to anyone else. 
in society because like are are we at the, the end point of this would be to say well okay well if you're a vegetarian you agree with you agree with what hitler said right um actually i recently got uh some trolls on twitter telling me that i was i was agreeing with hitler because i say said that there were two distinct biological sexes and that they well, were hitler, hitler did think that to be well, fair yes hitler did think that you know who else thought that everyone virtually everyone in human history and again it's a way of cheapening what a real for example genocidal uh views and rhetoric are and if you collapse all of those things plus you have this association what you get are a lot of people even on the right who are unable to have an honest conversation with anyone because as soon as somebody observes something that's outside of their overton window the entire discussion shuts down and it becomes a question of separating yourself from the bad person right um and, and denouncing it and not only is that you know, you can't run a political movement that way. You'll never get anywhere. Um, but even aside from the pragmatic aspect of it, it's it's so anti-intellectual. It's so uh, flattening to the the ways in which we can actually, uh, you know, actually challenge each other's ideas and like refine our own ideas. It's just I I used to read um, Chateau Hartiste a ton when I was at, back in 2015, which by the way. I was so naive. I think I said this. I, I, I would have it sent to my law school edu yeah. address, right? Yeah, so I have, I have the archive. Yeah. yeah. Um, I learned a lot from that blog. I thought he had a lot of good points. Did he also have some terrible points? Sure. Were there offensive things on there? Sure. But I, I learned a lot. Um, I think I sharpened a lot of my own views about sex differences, which are not exactly the same as uh, his, right? Um, but why why should we be afraid to read something that is maybe way beyond the pale to us, but then the worst case is it's going to sharpen how you think or how you debate somebody. I, I just, I don't know. I, I well, really Iglesias, don't like those Iglesias two was saying this to his fault. I mean, Iglesias is really, I mean, being, you know, I think he was, I think he was being heroic here. I mean, he, he goes, look, he goes, I think Hanania is racist. Okay, fine. He thinks that um, he's a, he's, he's a liberal. Um, but you know what? Like all, like a lot of conservatives have problematic views on race. Like from the perspective of his audience, you're also racist, and like everyone you know and talk to is pretty much racist. And so, like he's like, how are we ever going to talk to them about anything? You know, if if that's the standard. Um, and yeah, I mean, they just have this this culture of like, no, you can, you know, you can't. Uh, it's amazing. I mean, it, it was like four days. Like we never. Iglesias is like, look. I'm not, you know, friends with him. He doesn't hang out at my house all the time. He's <laughs> like, I wouldn't invite him for dinner. I'm like, you know, I'd, I'd go out for dinner with Iglesias, but like, he has to like say this stuff, and then it's like, just, just the talking, just the talking gets to them. Yeah, they really are. I mean, I think this is going to break down. I think this is a position of privilege, right? Back when they controlled Twitter and when they controlled the discourse, they could sit there and they could say, okay, this person is bad. You know, uh, Stefan Molyneux. We just, we're just going to get rid of them, right? We're going to cancel them. They're not going to be uh, on Twitter anymore and they're going to be removed from the discourse. I think they're going to be going through a period where like now Elon Musk owns Twitter and, um, you know, a lot of these right wing voices and even some crazy people are getting boosted. Um, you know, maybe they'll maintain their privileges within like the media and certain institutions, but I think that privilege is sort of, sort of crumbling. And I think we're going to get to a point where they're just going to be because of the, you know, the, the sort of the, the, um, the power sort of disparity between liberals and conservative, it's getting, it's getting shuffled a little bit. I think you're going to see less of that maybe by necessity. What do you think? Do you, do you think that sounds reasonable? Well, I think I was going to ask you the same thing, which is, do you think that this is, 
at least the beginning of the end of this. I, I don't know if I'd put it quite as optimistically as you did, but I, I do think maybe that the right is coming to this understanding, as I said at the beginning of the pod, because that would change the dynamic of this kind of cancellation attempt. Um, if, if, you, if people could find a home on the right, right, uh, after they had been canceled, because maybe that accelerates a, a sort of uh, bifurcated, uh, bifurcated country. I mean, I think a lot of things are, are trending that direction now. But I think it'd be an enormous improvement if the right didn't join in on the circling, you know, circular firing squad every time, basically on on marching orders from the left. Um, and again, it's not like you have to agree with or even stay silent. I don't like the idea that you know people have to stay silent if they hear something from somebody who's quote unquote on their team that they you know viscerally disagree with. But you attack the ideas. You don't exile the person, right? You you, you just launch an argument against the ideas, like when. You know, when I was talking about Sound of Freedom, right? Um, like I, I got well, a lot of pushback. Of, did you make fun of Sound of Freedom? Yeah, yeah, I got a lot of pushback from from uh, people because I really disliked this movie. I thought it was really, really bad. Um, and I, I, there was a write up about it in I am seventeen seventy six, which is a pretty far right journal uh, with some really great essays. But um, so he, one of this, these write ups referred to my remarks, but it was like I really disagree with this idea. I'm, I'm purposely making it the queen's English here, but um, you know, I, I really disagree with these ideas, but there's no personal attack. There's no attempt to, like exile somebody. Um, and I think it's just perfectly fine. I don't, I'm not silent about people with whom I disagree just because they happen to be on the right, but there has to be some middle ground. And I, I'm wondering if, if the right really understands that, that they can separate ideas from this full on exiling of a person, like, in in a way that really does remind me, by the way, of kind of late Soviet era, um, because I, I'm, I'm sure you know, you know, the, the gulags after Stalinism were in relatively low use. All right, you had to be like really aggressive to end up in the in the gulag, um, and it was more than enough to for the institutions to just blackball you. Right, if you didn't have a party card or you weren't in good start standing with the party. Um, then you wouldn't be able to get a job or you'd only be able to get a job off the books, you know, washing dishes and all of your friends and family wouldn't be able to associate with you because then their kids wouldn't be able to get into university, right? Those kinds of things I think are not that far off from the way that our culture was operating until recently. And I'm wondering if you think that that actually is changing because it seems like Pedro, I don't think is is like blackballed from the right. You, I don't think are going to be blackballed from the right. Nate, I don't think it's going to be blackballed from, from the right. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's crazier than that. Nate, Nick Fuentes is hanging out with like congressmen. I mean, you see like Paul Gosar was like speaking at like Nick Fuentes's uh, event or something like that. And as far as I know, these congressmen don't announce them. So I think, I think we really are in a new world. I think the polarization is such that like something like Huffington Post has no, uh, you know, has no sort of, you know, credibility to be telling people how they should think about different issues to the right. So, yeah, I think the battle of, you know, there's another guy named Scott Greer um, who was canceled. Uh, you know, he was writing for Daily Caller and he was on Fox News. He had a, you know, book called No Country for White Men. And he was canceled around uh, 20, uh, uh, 2018 or 2017. And yeah, it would be completely different today. I mean, they could say, you know, he had, he had some uh, racist writings in, in his past. There, he wrote for some racist publications. Therefore, 
that's it. He was just, you know, sort of excluded from everything in conservatism. I mean, part of it is just like, there's just, there's a market on the right. So like, let's say like Fox News didn't like me or they didn't like you, right? There's podcasts now and like, you know, YouTube stars who have bigger audiences than Fox News, right? Um, you know, you could go on like Tim Pool or, or something, right? And these these are like huge, huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, outlets. And the left could strangle that if they had Twitter, if they had social media, right? But you have Substack now and you have Twitter, unfortunately fighting with each other. I wish they would be working closely together, but you have Twitter and you have Substack, both, you know, unapologetically uh, pro-free speech, uh, big, you know, uh, um, uh, you know, um, big distributors of ideas. And, you know, with that, yeah, we're, we're, we're in a different world. We, we are, I mean, the, if you, you know, on the cancel culture on free speech, I don't know what things are going to be like in five, 10 years. Oh my God. I think in 2018 to 2020, uh, summer point, you could have thought that we were entering a, entering a new dark era, right? It was just going to be like these payment processors would shut off everyone who had a dissenting view. Google would deperson you. YouTube would deperson you. Uh, there's not, maybe we were headed to that. Maybe we were just lucky that Elon Musk bought, uh, bought Twitter, right? Um, but I think Musk buying Twitter and I think just like the, you know, the, you know, the, um, uh, greater sort of, uh, choices of like, it, it, things out there. And the left just overreached. I mean, the left just overreached and they caused a backlash on the right. Uh, they started calling everyone racist. And so like, you know, it was sort of uh, the boy who cried wolf. Uh, so yeah, I'm optimistic. We're going to get to, we're going to get to a better place. I am, I am I, personally like, I'm, you know, God is watching over me because if this happened in 2017, 2018, uh, it would have been different from 2023. Yeah. That and was we, my next question. If you think how different you think this would have been, if it was, if this had uh, been, release in 2017 i think i think he would have been done i feel bad for for jason richwine who, whose biggest biggest crime was writing something about race and iq in undergrad right i think it was his I undergrad it was his, thesis. It might have been his phd, it might have been his PhD maybe thesis, but yeah it was but team, he was, it was before he was even working uh yeah. and and he got blackballed pretty <laughs> effectively but uh yeah. i mean i i think you're you're right that I'm, I'm not as optimistic as you are because I, there's still inst- such a thing as institutional power here. And I'm not sure that it's that easy to break because you have huge differences. Um, although there's a caveat to that, that I'll get to, but huge differences between generations um, where every year at the bottom, you have essentially cultural revolutionaries being added. Uh, so even I think what we're seeing are the Gen X essentially defectors. Like Elon Musk is for me the quintessential Gen X defector. Um, I think folks like Barry Weiss are as well in their own ways. They're they're these these sort of uh, either apolitical or, or center left folks um, in these institutions who at one point just looked around themselves and said, "This is ridiculous." You know, this is this is this is getting way too ridiculous, right? Um, but what sounds ridiculous does not sound ridiculous to a lot of people under the age of 30, right? Who have really imbibed this from a very young age. It's the world that they've grown up in. It's more importantly, the world that rewards them with incentives for behaving in that way, like very concrete ones, both, you know, honors and financial. Um, So, but I do think the power of those institutions is brittle. I think it's quite pervasive, but it's brittle because if, I mean, the, the, total collapse in trust in virtually every American institution from, you know, obviously public health institutions over the pandemic, but, but uh, every branch of government, every agency, the media, big business, right? Social or, or tech companies. I mean, uh, 
the trust and support for any of those institutional things has been plummeting off a cliff, higher ed um, universities, right? Um, and that has to have a consequence at some point. And it seems like those institutions are very dedicated, perhaps because they feel the pressure from below from their workers, um, very dedicated to sort of squeezing harder and harder on a diminishing and more brittle source of credibility to the point where people just stop paying attention altogether. And I, I do wonder if we're at that point where at least the right is truly in their hearts, like just giving up on caring what these institutions say or think, because I think that'd be a very positive development. Well, I think we're, I mean, I think we're there. I mean, look under 30, like this idea is, you know, cancel. I mean, the, the you know, li- liberals are writing all these think pieces about, you know, how they're reading, you know, BAP or uh, the Fuentes. I mean, they're, they're really, I mean, I think the younger generation, I mean, I think cancellation is, you're right that like maybe the under 30s of like liberals and mainstream institutions are probably, um, are probably uh, worse than their elders, uh, but young conservatives are, are better. Um, and then like what the next generation is going to be like, you know, that's what's, you know, that's what sort of the battle is now. I mean, this is why, you know, Rufo and the work he's doing, this is why, you know, we're focusing on civil rights law. This is why free speech and Elon Musk's Twitter uh, are worth worrying about. You know, it's not just set in stone what the next generation is going to believe. The next generation is always being shaped by exactly what people like me and you and people more important than us um, are doing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think that those are two things. Uh, you know, it's never a complete... It's never a complete victory, you know. It's, it's always like, you know, what is that? What is that saying? But like, you know, every like liberty, I don't know something about like liberty is always one generation away from being lost. Um, that's always true. Uh, but I'm I'm overall optimistic. Um, I will say I've been more optimistic lately. I've just seen how little pressure. Uh, and actually, this is maybe moving away from from uh, the <laughs> the Richard cancellation show. Um, how I, how companies and how um, even universities have reacted to, for example, the, the affirmative action ruling has been more, it's been easier to push them than I thought it would be. I, I thought it would be like uh, trench warfare all the way, like needs to be constantly enforced. And that may still turn out to be true, but what we're seeing are private companies dropping their DEI programs because they're afraid of getting sued, right? What we're seeing are major law firms, according to Aaron Sabarium, right? Uh, telling their corporate clients, you know, you need to be careful about your hiring practices now from the opposite direction, not only um, afraid of the EEOC, but actually afraid that the Supreme Court means what it says, that racial preferences are unconstitutional, Um so, I mean, I, I've been encouraged. Or there was a recent story just a couple of days ago about um, the S&P dropping their um, what's, uh, ESG as part of their, their um, credit rating, right? Um, oh, really? I hadn't seen yeah. this. That's interesting. So, I mean, these are big institutions. Now, maybe they'll reconstitute these ideas in new forms, and we always have to, to watch for that. I mean... Um, one of the earliest sort of political battles I participated in was over Common Core. And that's really how we lost Common Core was um, we made it politically toxic to say Common Core. And that was a victory. But then the exact same laws and ideas were essentially instituted in um, in something like 40 something states, um, which is how, it was just under different names, right? Uh, college and career readiness was a, a kind of phrase. Um, but so we, we sort of won the rhetorical battle but we lost the, the substantive war and and maybe that'll 
be the case. Like maybe a lot of these programs will reconstitute, but it, it has been encouraging to me to see that these, these institutions actually can be pushed, whether by legislation, by court decisions, by just pure backlash, a la Bud Light. Um, these institutions can be pushed in, in the correct direction. Yeah, I think that's completely right. Yeah, so yeah, that was you know a lot there. Yeah, let's uh, let's move on. I want to talk about one more thing you mentioned. Uh, there was this Obama article in Tablet, and I I wish I'd read the whole thing. Um, I only read the parts about gay sex. I mean, I don't know what that says about me, but there was a part about Obama having you know fantasies about having sex with men, and I saw that, and I, I tweeted that, and a lot of people paid attention to it. But you're telling me that the uh, article itself is actually very interesting, so I'll have to read it uh, after this. But uh, explain to me sort of what's in there and what you found interesting. Yeah, I mean, it is worth it. It's very long, um, but but it is worth it. I think the the couple important takeaways that I saw, other than the the gay sex fantasies, and um, also the rehashing of um, a story that Obama had told in his own memoirs, it turns out to be almost certainly completely fabricated about why he broke up with his white girlfriend of many years. Um, somebody actually did the journalistic work of going to talk to her, uh, which seems like an obvious step um, that should have happened. A decade ago, but nevertheless, uh, somebody went to go talk to her, and she, of course, pointed out that actually their disagreements were about his endorsement um, or at least acceptance of anti-Semitism via Reverend Wright, Minister Farrakhan-style Black politics, um, and that's really was the the barrier between them. But leaving aside Obama's personal life for a moment, um, the the two big takeaways I, I came away with um, one is about the way we. The, Obama has been uh, remembered, I guess, uh, in the popular imagination, uh, and, and the other one about who's running the government today. Um, so so the, the first one about his legacy is that there is a lot in here that, that points to how I really remember Obama, which was as one of the first um, national figures to really put some of this extremely... Um, like hostile racial rhetoric into the world um, and, and from a position that it had not previously attained. Like this 1968 ideas that I think Christopher chronicles really well in his book, Cultural Revolution. I think Obama was in many ways the first president to really buy into a lot of the, his worldview very much sinks uh, with, but he is, he's simply much better at, you know, giving, a sort of moderate sounding gloss to it than many of its, its proponents today. Um, but in essence and, and in the way he governed, um, I think he was very much of this, this camp. Um, and then also of course, the, the idea that there were no scandals under his watch, except the tan suit or whatever, that's just like a straight up piece of propaganda you know, from gun running across the border to what the most important foreshadowing aspect. I think for me, um, the scandal of his administration was, that the IRS was politically targeting his his um, opponents and politically targeting Tea Party groups. Um, so and and Lois Lerner faced absolutely no consequences for that. Uh, so that that's all a reminder of, of who Obama actually is and um, what role his presidency actually played in the history of our country. Uh, but then in terms of the modern politics. It seems that he is, first of all, he broke precedent at the time, not leaving Washington, D.C. They said at the time that it was so that their daughters could complete their education in the in Sidwell Friends, which is a very fancy uh, private school in, in Washington, D.C. But of course, the Obama daughters have long 
left the nest um, and, and the Obamas are still in Washington, D.C., which is a departure again from precedent um, in terms of because exactly because we think that the, the peaceful transfer of power requires that the previous guy really fully um, take himself out of the political. I've, I've never heard that. I'm, I'm sorry, Rita, but I've, I've never heard this theory that the previous president should actually leave Washington. I'm sure most of them do just because they don't live in Washington, but I, I've never heard this as a norm until like, uh, it, it right was, now. it was, it was a norm, at least in modern politics. I, I, I can't pretend to know. Or well, people laugh because that means a norm because, time, they, but, but, but was that just because, I mean, they happened to just leave Washington, DC. I mean, no, it, it was, I mean, it, it's talk, it was talked about at the time, like that, that, and that's also the, um, the norm. I mean, these are genuinely norms and not, for example, constitutional prohibitions, but, but for example, the norm that the president, the former president doesn't comment on current political, like that was a norm yeah. all the way no, through. That I mean, one, that one, himself. Okay. Well, those were of a piece. The, those two, like we're going to leave, he's going to leave Washington DC. He's not going to comment. <laughs> I think you could physically be in Washington. I don't know. If that, okay. Well, go ahead, but go ahead. I, I, Are you gonna, go anyway, ahead. It, yeah. it was a norm, whether it's the right norm, whatever it was broken. Um, and you could think, oh, again, he had this like sort of apolitical reason that he gave the press. By the way, the evidence that it was a norm is that he was asked about it uh, by the press. Uh, and he gave this very apolitical reason. My daughters need to finish school. Very understandable, right? No need to uproot my daughters from, from their school. Um, but again, that excuse ran out a long time ago. And uh, according to this article, there are a lot of senior officials um, who have current high positions. They were working for Obama in his administration. They have current high positions now. He's having people um, at these salons in his his house in Calorama, right? Um, and th there have been obviously questions about because of Joe Biden's obvious uh, limitations and decline in terms of even if, even if we don't take the worst case scenario uh, in terms of, of his mental decline, he's obviously like very limited in how much, you know, energy in any given day he can expend in running the government. Um, and I've always said, oh, who's running the government. I mean, the same people who have always been running the government in recent decades, which is the administrative state without much oversight at all. But this article at least heavily hints at the possibility that what's actually happening is that both under the Trump administration and in the current one, um, a lot of the administrative state is, is really taking direction or at least very strong advice from Barack Obama. Really? Uh, there's, yeah. uh, that? there's, uh, there's evidence of, of this. Yeah, just that, just these meetings at his house. You know, there's there's hard to say. Uh, it, it hints heavily at it. Um, it's the sort of thing that if we had a reasonable press corps, they might be concerned about. It'd be very easy to stake out the Obama's house um, and see who is arriving and and uh, leaving from that house at what time um, in correspondence with what policies. Right. Uh, this is the sort of investigative journalism that one might imagine a young gumshoe might be up to uh, if we had a fourth estate, but we, we don't. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying this is definitively true. Uh, and, and also it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be like sort of incredibly nefarious pulling strings sort of situation. It's he is the senior member of the democratic party. He's still heavily involved in the democratic party. Um, all of these, these high ranking officials used to work for him. Um, the president is obviously in decline. Um, and it, it seems like it would actually be somewhat natural on, on a human level for a lot of people to seek advice from their former boss in this way. But it is, look, it, it you know, <laughs> that is not how our government is supposed to function, right? We, we weren't supposed to give Barack Obama a third term. Joe Biden ran. Um, yeah. So. The, the uh, 
I'll read. I'll read this piece. But so, I mean, are you bothered by Trump, uh, like his influence over Republicans in Congress? I mean, he's endorsing some people and not others. I mean, he's a major. He's a. He seems more clearly a major figure in the Republican politics than Obama is in Democratic. Unless he's really, you know, Obama's really running the government. Does, does that bother you at all? No, because he's actively running for president. He's not turned out, right? He lost an election and he wants to come back. <laughs> you think he, when, he Trump, when Trump gets turned <laughs> out, he's gonna he's gonna be hands off and not not comment and. I mean, I, I doubt it, but, uh, <laughs> but, but as of now, no, it doesn't bother me. He's, he's the leading candidate for the nomination. He's obviously seeking office again. Um, so I think it's a very different situation. He's not termed out, but as I said, Reagan, uh, Bush senior, Bush junior, they all stepped away from politics. Clinton, even to some degree did, although through his wife, of course, you can, I guess you, you got to imagine how separate are the political interests of Hillary and Bill Clinton. Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, um, but it has been the tradition for presidents once they're turned out to step out exactly because they're incapable of being held responsible democratically, right? It's, it's not, that's, that's not a small D democratic system. If you have people who will never even have the uh, option to stand for election, making major policy and political decisions for the country, that's anti-democratic. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah. We'll link to the, uh, we'll link to the Obama uh, piece. Um, yeah. It's, it's the sort of thing, um, just my recommendation is the sort of thing that, you know, you can read for 20 minutes and then maybe put it aside and then read another section. It's very long. Um, it, it's at least a, you know, 30, 40 minute read, maybe, you know, depending on how fast you read, maybe it's like 60 minute read. So uh, I would treat it as like a short book almost. And um, it's, but it's a very, very interesting interview. I think it is very revealing uh, both personally and politically about Obama and about our system. Yeah. I think it's well worth reading. Yeah. Um, okay, great. Uh, yeah, we have a couple minutes left. Let's see if we can just sneak in something about the uh, 2024 election since we've been around for, uh, we've been away for a little while. Um, what do you think about the Santos? What do you think about him finally saying sort of half-heartedly, but then would push on it uh, a little bit more forcefully that um, Trump lost the uh, uh, 2020 election. And just what are your thoughts on the DeSantis campaign more generally? Last polls I've seen, it's it's not looking good. So I'll leave the, the campaign stuff aside for a moment because I don't, I really just don't see why anyone would seek my advice on political campaigns. But um, in terms of answering the question about the election, I, I think it's being played in left-wing media very, very differently than what I hear when I listen to that interview, um, which is that DeSantis is laying out the case for um, the very clear ways in which the, the election of 2020 was not a clean election. Uh, and I think that there's, for, those are, those are uh, varied and serious. The changes to voting rules, um, in some cases, not going through the legislature, right, during COVID, uh, major changes to those rules laying out uh, the the censorship of a major story, uh, dropping it off the New York Times, uh, sorry, not, the New York Post story about Hunter's laptop, right? Um, talking about uh, a variety of other, like both, both legal and then also talking about the ways in which uh, it's difficult to actually prove fraud through the courts. Um, you have to actually get those cases in on, on the merits uh, before you can introduce a lot of evidence. Anyway, it, I, I thought he gave a very good answer on the ways in which you could consider this election to be unfair. Um, but then he, he separated those from, for example, the, the theory about the Dominion machines or um, some of some of these other uh, 
he talk, did he talk about that? I didn't see, maybe, I didn't, maybe I didn't see the full clip. He's, he talked about the voting machines and all that other stuff. Well, he basically said that that part, if you're asking about that, do I think that machines change the vote totals? No. If you're asking, do I think this election was conducted with the standards that, you know, for example, the 2016 or, or uh, you know, 2000 election was were conducted under, the answer is no. Um, so I actually thought he answered that question really well. And then the headline in the, in the media was, you know, Biden won, you know, or Santos admits Biden won 2020, which the entire way of framing that question, right, is is um, inherently sort of in bad faith, right? So obviously Biden won, he's sitting in, in the office. You can question the structure of the election and, and, and ask, did that affect the outcome? But there's no way for us to know. Um, you can suspect that it affected the outcome, um, but but there's not really a way for us to answer that question. Anyway, I thought he answered the question with a lot of nuance um, and and well, actually, and that the headline didn't reflect what he said, because they're obviously just trying to, like, make sure that he ticks off the Trump voters and uh, and then to ding Trump at the same time and have their own reasons for writing headlines that way. But I, I would encourage people to actually watch the full exchange. Um, so on that, I, I think I'm very much in the DeSantis camp, um, in terms of his, his chances in the election, look at nobody's, nobody's cast a ballot yet. There's a long way to go, but it certainly seems like he has less of a chance of winning now, um, than he did when he jumped into the race. And that's never a good thing for a campaign. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, yeah, I think that the way you described uh, his answer, I think is, uh, is fair. And I think a lot of the reason he's like, even asked this question now is because he's finally exposing himself to some non-conservative media. I mean, no conservative uh, 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 organization is going to ask, you know, did Donald Trump lose the election, right? But liberals, liberal media is actually, so it's like, it's good. He's, saying, he's finally getting opportunities to sort of engage a little bit, whether it works or not, you know, uh, we'll see. Okay. Well, well per, per usual, there is also the, the dishonesty on, on the abortion question where uh, his interlocutor stated very boldly that there are zero Democrats who uh, support abortion up until birth when obviously there are many prominent Democrats on the record for that. Oh, before we wrap up, just one, one, uh, housekeeping point. The reason yeah, we, <laughs> I was on vacation in Poland, <laughs> Richard was dealing with his book. Uh, it just so happened that we didn't record for a couple of weeks while, uh, Richard got canceled. It has nothing to do with it. So I got a lot of tweets about that. Like, is this, <laughs> is this show canceled or <laughs> whatever? No, this was just a, a coincidence. So. No, the rest of the world might cancel me, but yeah, I don't think I don't think it does ever will. <laughs> All right, great. Then I will see you uh, next week. I'll see you next week.